Well, that was great. Uh, thank you, Nate and worship team. And uh, good to have those child dedications. The, the little guy in the gray sweater. What, Shay? Is it Shay? Is that Shay? Boy, he's got lots of woo. You wonder, what's going to happen to a kid like that? I'll tell you what's going to happen to him. He's going to be a pastor. That's what's going to happen to him. I could see myself. I'm like, that's me up there. Yeah, that was great. Wonderful, wonderful. Congratulations, parents. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Father God, we've come this morning and you are the only attraction. So Father, captivate our hearts, engage our minds, stir our spirits. May we leave this place having been with Jesus and may he wash our feet. Father, we love you. We want you to hear that from our lips this day. It's the name of our King who is risen and at your right hand, by which we come to you, cleansed, redeemed, and restored. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 11. We're in two interconnected chapters, if you will. And last week we studied chapter 10 with this amazing story of the gospel permeating out into, uh, a the gospel moves out kind of in concentric circles from the time of Jesus. And last week we looked at Acts chapter 10 and the gospel goes to the Gentiles by way of Peter. And we unpacked that a little bit. And 11, chapter 11 revisits this story, but it has a unique sort of context to it. And uh, my message this morning is called, Can You See in the Dark? And I think, I hope that will make more sense as we come towards uh, the end of our time this morning. But uh, Acts chapter 11, we're going to start right at verse 1. This is on the heels of the gospel going out. Word has spread that Gentiles have embraced the message of Christ. And we come to Acts chapter 11 Verse 1, so follow along, hear the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Now stop right there. Don't read another sentence, don't read another word. Word's gone out that the Gentiles have received the word of God. They've heard the message of Christ. Word has spread of the event that we studied last week. That Peter, a Jew, had gone to a group of Gentiles and declared the message of Christ, and they had received it. And word of that reality has spread throughout the land. It's an amazing thing. Now, without reading the next verse, you, you wonder, what would, what would that look like? Uh, let me ask you this this morning, Bethel. I don't know Strathroy uh, well, uh, but you do, you're here. There's probably uh, an area, maybe a neighborhood, maybe a housing development, there was in the town that I grew up, that's kind of considered the other side of the tracks. Do you know what I mean? It's just not the best area of town, and people, you know, you hear somebody grew up there, and you think, oh, that must have been tough, that must have been difficult, uh, what, what if you heard that the gospel went to that particular neighborhood? So, somebody uh, from the church went down there and they began to share the message of Christ. 
And they came back and they reported here at Bethel. They said, you know, we went down to so-and-so neighborhood. We, we went down to that, that complex and we shared the gospel of Christ. Oh, yeah. And people embraced the message. And people gave their lives to Christ. In fact, some of them are ready to be baptized. It was an amazing thing. And somebody stands up and says, oh, you did, did you? Well, that's all good and well. But I've been down there. And, you know, there's some gay pride flags in some of the windows down there. And, 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 you know, I, I've been down there. I know some of the people there. I, I, I work with some of those. I know some of those people. Some of them have very crude tattoos. And you'd say, what? What? But that's exactly what we're about to read. That's exactly what happened here. Let's read a little farther. Verse number 2. Now, when we read verse number one, what do you think the next thing we should read should be? What should people be saying? Praise the Lord! Great! Wonderful! Amen! Way to go, God! Let's get in on that. That's amazing! Look to verse two. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcision party, I always find that a bit comical that circumcision and party are put together. That seems to be an odd combination of words. <clears throat> Cir circumcision party criticized him saying, so you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Dr. W.H. Larkin, who was my New Testament seminary professor when I was at uh, Columbia seminary in the U.S. is a noted Acts, he's with the Lord now, but he was a noted Acts scholar. And I will remember Dr. Larkin saying that these three verses are the saddest verses in the New Testament. The saddest verses in the New Testament. He may be right. How could you go, Peter, and eat with those guys? What's saddest about this, friends, is that they are Jewish Christians who are declaring their angst. If you've ever been to Italy and toured in Italy, if you go to the northern part of Italy, up in the north area to the town of Ravenna, you will find a 1,600-year-old chapel. It's actually a mausoleum, but with a twist of fate, the lady that was to be buried there was buried somewhere else. But it's just a little cross-shaped, cruciform-shaped little chapel, the chapel of Gaia Placidia. Just a little building. It contains what many people believe to be the greatest mosaics in the world. On the ceilings and on the walls of this little building. Tens of thousands of pieces of glass intricately and, and carefully placed on these ceilings and walls in scenes. It's an amazing thing. Many of them are placed on their side, so when the light hits it, it sends a unique shimmer with gold leaf in between many of the pieces of glass on these barreled ceilings. 
One of the most famous of those scenes, one of the most iconic scenes, is a mosaic over the door. It's Jesus as the good shepherd with six sheep, three on either side of him. There's very few windows in this little chapel, just this big. They're covered in alabaster. Let's very little light in. What's amazing about this place is, as you can imagine, when it was built 1,600 years ago, there wasn't fluorescent lights or LEDs or even incandescent. It was lit by torch. And if you sit in there today, they have just a few very strategic placement of lights because, of course, it was torches that would flicker there. And when those torches would flicker, at times the, the movement of those flames and that light would hit that ceiling in unique and powerful ways. And people go, wow, that's glorious. Out of the darkness, they, they would see this glorious light and, and they'd see this, this mosaic of the Good Shepherd. And, and today you can go there and you can take a private tour of it. And apparently on the private tour, they shut the lights off and you sit there in the dark and they say, now watch this. And they flick the lights and for a second, boom, you see these glorious, glorious images in the midst of the darkness. It's astounding. But you have to sit and you have to watch and wait for that light to burst forth from the darkness. After 30 years in ministry, friends, I've seen far too many Christians sitting in the shadows of religious darkness. They get captivated and consumed by elements of the shadows. They, they, they co-opt light and darkness. It's a very fat, sad state. Especially when we consider the truth of the Apostle John at the beginning of his gospel where he writes this. And, and we focus more on the first couple of verses than we do the next two or three. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. Listen, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the, does anybody know the next word? Light of men. Verse number 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When people start mixing in darkness and light, I have found they get cynical and sanctimonious. They major in minors and they amplify red herrings, and often the traditions of men soon become the doctrines of God. When I was pastoring early in my pastorate, our church was growing Dozens of people were getting baptized. People had a sense of the wonder of God. And a man made an appointment to come and see me one day, which was fine. And he came into my office and he sat down across from me in one of my chairs there. And no sooner had he sat down and his hands began to shake. 
And I said, this guy is either really sad or really mad. It turns out he was really mad. And in the midst of his shaking and upset, he said to me, who moved the communion table? Now, you're going to be shocked by this, but on occasion, I say funny things at the wrong time. <clears throat> and I thought about saying, oh, you didn't hear the news? That communion table was the original communion table stolen from the upper room. And Israel asked for it back. The truth of the matter is, it's probably a lot like your communion table, which is made by, you know, the Snodgrass Furniture Company in Topeka, Kansas or something. It's representative of something. And he was shaking. The sad part was, I didn't notice that anybody had moved it. So I was really compromised in the whole thing. And my heart was saddened. Because the week before, we baptized 10 people on Sunday. We'd heard amazing testimonies of God's grace, of God taking people out of dark, dark darkness and pulling them into the light. Hey, Peter, you went and ate with uncircumcised... No, I don't care about the, the gospel. And You went and ate with uncircumcised people. Peter, come on. Religious darkness, friends, is far more dangerous to the church than spiritual darkness. Because it exists within the walls. It works to diminish the light. And that's why Dr. Larkin says these are very sad verses. Very sad verses. Now what happens next is Peter at his clarion best what he does now is beautiful. He could respond and say, you guys are all wet. Are you kidding me? Get lost. But he's actually fairly gracious to them. Now, interestingly, in the book of Galatians, Paul, he goes after these sanctimonious, long-nosed, pharisaical people. And you know what he says they should do to themselves? He says they should castrate themselves. Now that's crude. But that's how against this Paul is. He says they should emasculate. Most scholars believe he's saying they should be castrated for this nonsense. But what does Peter do? Let's look. For the next few moments, what I'd like to do, friends, is see Peter unpack the events. And we see flashes of light into this darkness, cutting through it. And I'd like to share with you some warning signs to the church, to you as a church, when we allow our darkness to impact our light and, and we co-opt it. And we have the benefit of the entirety of the text in 1 John. Let me read that to you and just set the compass. We usually dwell in 1 John chapter 1, 
verse 9, but let me give you the full context. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, the shadows, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We know that verse, verse 9. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Charles Dodd, the famous uh, pastor theologian, said, To be within the light, then, is to say to be in union with God. It means to lead a good life, since God is good. So what does it look like when we intermingle light and darkness? Look down to verse number four. But Peter began. He's heard them. You went, you ate with the uncircumcised. Why would you do that, Peter? Peter's going to unpack it. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance. I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descended, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely. I observed animals and beasts and prey and reptiles of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, we talked about that last week, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice entered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. One way we co-opt light and darkness, the first way, friends, is this. We stand in opposition to God's revealed will. We stand in opposition to God's clearly revealed will. Are you doing that in any area of your life? Is there some little area of your life that you've got sort of partitioned off where you know that part of your life there's some shadow, there's, there's some darkness, and, and, and there's something there that you know deep in your being you're standing in opposition to God's revealed will. That's one of the ways we co-opt. You, you know, I heard a preacher one time say something, he just kind of said it off the cuff, and it kind of startled me. He said, maybe Jesus was not kidding when he gave those commands about how to live a godly life. I said, Wow. You know, when you move into areas in your Christian life, and I've done this, you know, and you say, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but, you know, also this, and, you know, as soon as you get into justification, you know, and, and qualification, you know you're probably on very thin ice. And we talked last week that this is a major shift for Peter. He's going to have to release this tightly held conception that to become a Christian, you first needed to become a Jew. That's the issue with these uh, Judaizers. It, it, the way to become a Christian is you've got to go through Judaism. And that's not the case in the gospel. But Peter's stuck in that mode. It was inconceivable that a, a, a pagan Gentile could simply step up and believe in Jesus. But how about us? Do we have some pseudo-biblical thinking about certain topics? You know, one of the ways churches get stuck on this is ministry methodology. You know, we, we discount other churches because they're doing something a certain way, and that's not the way we do it. And uh, so, you know... Uh, probably not going to work. We 
We have a sister church in the fellowship in St. Catherine's named Harbor Fellowship, by, pastored by a guy, a wonderful godly man named Jeff Bennett. <clears throat> Guess what they've started to do in the last few years? Go out on the street and share the gospel. Go knock on doors. Well, we all know that doesn't work. But guess what? People are coming to Christ. It's amazing. They go out under the downtown area. They go to malls. They go to the streets. People come out, hey, I want to talk to you. They have a little methodology they share. And over and over again, people say, yeah, I, my life's a wreck. Yeah, I, there's got to be something better than this. Speaking about walking in the light, I was told i got to stay in front of the lights, so I'm probably in trouble. I'm, I'm in the shadows myself. <laughs> but, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, yeah, you know, face-to-face confrontational evangelism, that doesn't work anymore. Except we got a little problem because the Scripture says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. It's God's revealed will. D.L. Moody was criticized by Christians for the way he did evangelism. He had a great response. He said, you know, you criticize for the way I do it. He says, I actually like the way I do evangelism better than the way you don't do evangelism. Right? Let me ask you, are you walking in alignment with God's revealed will in your life? You know what I've noticed? I've noticed this, and I've become deeply committed to this reality in my own life. God is good, amen? And God is sovereign, amen? And when those two things intersect, and I walk in that reality, life is good. And I have realized over the last 30 years in ministry, sometimes God reveals something that he wants me to do, and I sit back. Well, you know, I'm tired, I'm busy. And you know what? He asked a few times. And then you know what he does? He uses somebody else. His plans are not going to be thwarted. They're not counting on me. I've seen that over and over again. He moves on. He used someone else. It's a sad and frightening place, friends, for churches and for us as Christians to stand in opposition to God's clearly defined will. Secondly, secondly, how do we mix light and darkness? We do this. We, we do not respond to God-ordained opportunities. Look at verse 11. Peter says, all of this happened to me. God came. He said, what's common or what I think is common is not common. It's of the Lord and everything. And, and he's, he, he gets this image and he's kind of, and all of a sudden, on the gate. Verse 11, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers accompanied me and we entered the man's house. The second way we mix light and darkness is we don't respond to God-ordained opportunities. We don't respond to God-ordained opportunities. This is an angelic experience that's followed by somebody at the door, beckoning Peter to come and meet with those common people. And Peter obviously felt a nudge from God. Spirit prompted. The opportunity was right there, and Peter responded. Tells us in chapter uh, 10, we read last week, that he goes, and Cornelius, a centurion, an upright man, God-fearing, 
who's well-spoken by the whole, whole Jewish people, said that, uh, you know, we're here, we want to hear what you have to say. It's interesting to me, uh, some of you know that I work uh, some of my time for the fellowship, uh, Centra, uh, Feb Central. I work with them, for them as a consultant. And churches call me. They call me about, I get probably one call a month, at least. It's a nice church, and they pose this question to me. Hey, uh, uh, we're wondering if we could hire you, in other words, give me money, to help us with a strategic plan. And I say, oh, okay. We want to figure out what it is we are supposed to do in this season of ministry, and we think we need a really good strategic plan. Now, <clears throat> let me just say this. So some of you, you know, you, you're going to disagree with me, and so if you disagree with me, feel free to email Nate. Um, <clears throat> the whole idea of strategic planning is rooted in industrialization. It's an industrial business model. Now, I'm not saying you don't plan and you don't have some ideas and some things, but the kingdom of God is not an industrial enterprise. It's actually an agrarian enterprise. Did you know that? Truly, truly, I say to you, this is the Lord Jesus himself, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life and whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Luke 8, 5, 8, a sower went out to sow his seed. You know the story, right? Some falls on the path, gets trampled underfoot, some is eaten by the birds, and some falls on rocks and it withers, but some falls on good soil. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 8, I planted, Apollos did what? Anybody know? Watered, but God gave the increase or the growth. See, it's an agrarian model. We do our part, but God has to do his part. So I think instead of strategic planning, as much as we do that, and there's some helpful elements to it, I think what we need to do is more strategic preparing and strategic praying. What do we pray? Well, we pray two things. Obviously, we pray one for the power of God. God, we need your power. We, we want to experience your unending ability. God, give us your power. But there's a second piece to that. Not only do we pray for God's power, we pray for God's favor. See, God's power is his unending ability. God's favor is his supernatural access. The folks at Harbor Fellowship in St. Catharines, when they go out on the street and do evangelism, guess what there's people at the church doing? They have people at the church praying, just banging on the door. Lord, give us favor. Give us access to people's hearts and minds. Some of you may know that when I was pastoring, uh, one day a man came to visit me, and uh, we had, the church I pastored had a very large building large facility, and it, you know, frankly, it did sit empty a lot of the time. And this man came to see him, and he said, uh, I have a suggestion. I said, oh, okay. We need to start a Christian school in our building, because it's empty, right, during the week. And I said, well, first of all, there's a really good Christian school down the street, and I don't know that you know, we should start one when they've got a good one. Maybe we should help them. And so, and he just kept pushing it, and I said to him, you know, 
I'd actually rather start a public school than a Christian school. He, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, it would be more strategic because we'd have all these lost kids here. Right? I'm sort of an evangelist at heart. But he didn't really understand that. And off he went. But he kind of stirred in me. And I was like, yeah, this building's empty too much. So I went to a few of the elders and, and a few people, and I said, hey, you know, the Lord's kind of stirred something in me. I want you to pray about how we're to use this building more efficiently. And just ask God to reveal that. So, off they went. About four weeks went by. Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, my phone rings. I'm sort of, you know, half asleep on Saturday morning. And this lady says, have you heard the news? I said, what news? She said, Allison Park Public School has burned down overnight. And I said, burned down? She goes, actually, it's still burning. I'm standing here looking at it. And they're still pouring water on this school. This school was in one of the most difficult neighborhoods in our city. A lot of new Canadians struggling, a lot of single moms, grandparents raising grandkids, a very uh, needy kind of area. And when the, the school was sort of the hub of that neighborhood, so not only was it the loss of the building, it was sort of the infrastructure to the community, you know? It was sort of their social, and it burned down. And she says to me, this lady who happened to be on the school board, who phoned me, she said, would forward take the school in? And I said, yeah, probably. And I'm thinking, I am going to be in big trouble. <clears throat> but I've been in trouble before. Uh, remember Shay? Yeah. So, so I said, yeah. She said, can we come over there at 10 o'clock? Two hours later, she says, can we come over there and see the church? I said, yeah, I guess so. So I get off the phone. Then I phone a couple of people, including Nancy's brother, to get myself out of trouble. And uh, he's like, yeah, let's go for it. See, because we've been praying that. God revealed to us. And so 10 o'clock that morning, five big shots from the Waterloo Board of Education showed up, and they looked around. And they said, yeah, yeah, okay, you got bathrooms. you got a place we can turn buses around. you got a gymnasium. That's great. Uh, you got enough classrooms here, and we can use this little kitchen if we need. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, good, yeah. Yeah, can we come on Monday? I said, I guess so. <laughs> so Sunday morning, I get up in front of our, you know, 12 or 1,400 people, and I say, hey, everybody hear that Allison Park School burned down yesterday? Everybody, oh, yeah. I said, well, guess what? I said, tomorrow we become Allison Park School. And everybody broke out in a cheer. Because we were walking in an opportunity that God, Monday, 50 people, trucks, everything showed up started unpacking computers and desks. And this was in about May, and they said, uh, yeah, April. They said, if you can get us to the end of the school year, then we'll figure out what to do. Fair enough. They stayed three and a half years. Isn't that incredible? Beautiful. It was beautiful, absolutely. We had Muslim kids and Hindu kids and, and, and Sikh kids. And the, and, and the next day, the Monday night, the, the Board of Education held a meeting for all of the parents and kids, and all of these people gathered in another school gym to hear what was going to happen, because they said, what are our kids going to do? We have no school. And I was invited to go to the meeting, so I sat in the back. There was about 500 people packed in this gymnasium, Muslim, Hindu, and I sat in the back. And the mayor of the city, he was at the front, and I knew him, and he, he comes wandering in the back, and he gets me, and he says, hey, he says, come and sit on the stage with us. I said, no, I'm okay back here. He goes, no, no, you better come up. If there's any religious questions, you better answer them. I'm like, oh, okay, Gary, <laughs> what in the world? I said, okay, fair enough. 
and they announced forward is going to take in and everybody clapped and at the end these very very obvious muslim men a group of four or five of them came up in their full muslim attire and they came up to me and they gathered around me and the one took my hand and he put his other hand over the back of it and he said my brother what you've done is a wonderful thing muslims and we got to minister to those muslims and those hindu kids for three and a half years and bless them and and, and, you know here's the reality good deeds create goodwill and that makes room for good news so that's where you have to start so don't don't miss when god brings an opportunity for peter was obvious they're knocking at the gate third thing i gotta hurry up here thing i gotta hurry up look down at verse 15 Peter goes, meets with Cornelius. He's telling all of these Judaizers what he did. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as at the beginning, verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. One of the ways you mix light and darkness is not speaking the truth of God's word. Give people truth. It doesn't matter if it's not well-received, if it's not popular. You can trust God in the turbulence that comes when you give people truth. People need truth. They need something to anchor their life to. And so that's what Peter does. He goes up, I'm going to tell you the truth. And I shared with you last week that little section there in chapter 10. He gives the gospel. There's Jesus, Jesus came, he was crucified, he was resurrected. And in him is forgiveness of sins. That's that's the gospel. And he tells that to Cornelius and all those people who are listening. Bethel, do not ever lose sight of giving people the truth of God's word. Number four, last thing. Last thing. One of the ways you mix light and darkness is you get in the way of the Spirit's work. Look at verse 16 and 17. Peter says, and I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I got to get out of the way. The Spirit of God's at work amongst them. The wind of the Spirit is blowing through. How do we get in the way of the Spirit's work? Well, we do it by way of the flesh, right? That's how we do it. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 5.10, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. You know what enmity is? It's criticism. It's exactly what we read about in verses 1 through 3, the beginning of chapter 11. Critical spirit. You're not doing it right. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Wow. But what does Peter do? He goes back to the Word of God to bring truth to bear on his position. He said, I just told him the truth. I told him the truth about Jesus. And when you give people truth, you cut a clear channel for the Spirit of God to work. Even when you don't understand it, And even when people don't agree with it. Let me share this and I'm done. How many of us would agree this morning that we live in a dark world? 
Would you agree we live in a dark world? Sitting at my computer on, I think it was maybe Thursday morning, went, clicked over to CNN and CTV News. Let me read you six headlines that appeared without me looking at all. This is this week. This is Thursday of this week. Funeral home abandons 200 decomposing bodies. Imagine if that was your mom or your dad or your child. Second, Belleville has declared a state of emergency after 17 people died from drug overdoses in 24 hours. In Belleville. Toronto woman is battling both an eviction and terminal cancer. She's in the final stages of her life. She'd be booted out. She can't pay the rent. You probably heard about this one. Pornographic deep fake images of Taylor Swift circulated online. And if you think she's going to, you know, everybody, that is going to become a rabid problem with all of this AI stuff. Scary stuff. Man sentenced for drugging wife's drinks to induce an abortion. And then, of course, Israeli airstrikes kill 13 in Rafah, and 30 hostages are actually dead that they thought were still alive. And you read all of that and you go, my goodness, this world is dark. And if you don't read stuff like that and think the world's dark, you're either foolish or selfish or careless. Because it's a dark world. And sometimes when you read stuff like that, you want to say, enough already. The darkness is... And sometimes, you know, you want to say, God, where are you? Don't you? If there's such darkness, where are you? Friends, the question is not, where is God with all this darkness? Here's, here's the issue. The issue is, if God is not here, why is there any light at all? Why is there any light at all? That's the issue. But we sit in the darkness. We're like in that little chapel in northern Italy. We've got our eyes wide open. And we watch for the flashes of glorious light. And we respond to the light. We're not consumed by the darkness. Amen? We respond to the light. Because if you walk in the light, he is in the light. And we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Take away this morning, friends. Am I walking fully in the light of the Lord's kingdom will? I want you to ask yourself that this morning as we come to communion. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, or help us to see, tis only the splendor of light that's with thee. Father God, we love you. Father, may we be children of light and not co-op darkness. Get cynical and sanctimonious. Get critical. But rest in the reality that you are at work. That we would gaze in wonder at flashes of light in the midst of our dark world. And give you all praise and glory for you alone are worthy. Amen. And amen.